0: Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Who pardons all your iniquities? Who heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit? Who crowns your years with love and compassion? Who satisfies your longings with good things? so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made his way known to Moses, his acts, his deeds to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. And those few first few verses from Psalm 103, a thousand years before the advent of Jesus Christ, tell us what Jesus will do, pardons our sins, redeems our life from the pit. We as followers of Jesus Christ, in spite of the pandemic, in spite of the chaos in our our culture, have so very much to be thankful for, amen? Amen. So very much to worship God for. All that is within me, worship Him. And as followers of Christ, we have so much to pray about. We have to pray about this pandemic Uh, that'll probably be with us for a while. For people who are sick, for people who are out of work. For not just the racial division in our country, but for racism and all its heinous, ugly forms. That we might stand against that. We might stand against all forms of injustice. Uh, we want to pray for uh, people who are suffering, uh, people who during this time are in crisis. Want to pray for our government leaders, for our president that is sick with the COVID. For the upcoming elections we want to pray that we as followers of Jesus Christ wherever we are will be agents as we've talked about earlier of light not darkness that we might reflect uh, the glory of Jesus in the marketplace in our neighborhoods at home that our families will thrive we want to pray for families young families in our church Uh, that are facing all sorts of struggles because of this pandemic. There is so much to be thankful for. There is so much to pray about. And I want to invite you to pray for our church. Uh, We are moving forward in so many wonderful ways. Uh, as we continue to increase our effectiveness online and our streaming, and as we begin to open up more and more over the last couple of months, we're getting closer and closer to, we're not quite there yet, but a 1,000 people meeting face-to-face in our campuses and in our different worship services. That is just wonderful. We're seeing more and more people participate in, in groups, students, uh, adults, and different Bible studies and in life groups and coming together, sometimes face-to-face, often over Zoom, that together we can encourage one another and bear one another's burdens. We've been opening gradually student ministry and children's ministry And we, although we have gone through a very rough summer, like so many other churches, because of COVID, we've gone through a very rough summer, especially financially. Giving, I want you to know, was really good in September. And now as summer gives way to the fall, we find ourselves, because of our summer, about a little over $300,000 short of our budget. It's something to pray about. It's something for all of us together to shoulder to, to step into. I'll come back to this a, a little later this morning. Uh, we have done a really good job here of, of cutting expenses, of freezing, hiring, different things. We've got a wonderful team that manages the ministry of Wheaton Bible Church and looks very closely at our finances. But I want to invite you to pray so that when we come to the end of the year, we will look back and be amazed at what God has done as we raise this additional $40,000 over the next month or so for Missions Fest. So much to be thankful for. People are coming to Christ. Somebody told me after the last service uh, somebody who's actually uh, works in the police force as a policeman about the privilege he had earlier this year of leading another to Christ. God is at work, God is building the church. We will not fear, amen? Amen. We will gather, we will stand, we will obey, we will trust. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the riches that are ours in Christ. For, For this moment, all too brief a moment to celebrate the wonder of what communion points us to. And we thank you that one of the things that comes through is that our Jesus is real. This is not a myth, it's not a figment of our imagination, but that Jesus Christ really did live, really did die, was really raised from the dead, it's historical. And that Jesus is alive on the other side of sight. And we want to pray, God, in light of all the blessings you have showered on us, the things you are doing and will do, and ask that you would deliver us from this pandemic. But you would help us understand it's not just our health that's being tested, it's our hearts. And I pray for the church of Jesus Christ around the world as uh, in in your sovereignty, in your time, we begin to come out uh, of this pandemic and pray that our allegiances will be clear, that our allegiance to Jesus Christ will uh, not have dissipated, not have washed away, but will be stronger than ever. I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for their hearts. I pray for their homes. I pray that you will bless them in the marketplace for uh, those that are unemployed, those are facing significant financial setback. Oh God, give mercy. Open doors. Provide. We pray for our government leaders, for our president, that he would be healed soon. We pray for these upcoming elections. We pray, God, that you would give our country wisdom. We pray that you would raise up leaders that are godly and winsome and love Jesus, and you would surround uh, leaders who who don't with godly, wise counsel. We hate the racism, uh, the hostility we see around us, the, the chaos, the harshness. And we ask God uh, that you would enable us to be agents of reconciliation, to carry out the ministry of reconciliation, recognizing all of us are made in the image of God, regardless of our skin color, the unborn, uh, precious children around the world that desperately need a home. So we come to you to this, uh, this day and we thank you that you are building the church and the gates of hell will not prevail and we ask that you would do this here at Wheaton Bible Church and you would bless our ministries as we go forward that we would see in this season more and more people come to Christ and that in, wherever we are that we would seek the good of people around us that you would provide for us financially, that you would provide for us spiritually and emotionally. And we give you the praise, we give you the honor, and we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, as I begin this morning, I want to first of all thank you for praying over the last couple of weeks for our family. It's been actually a pretty wild three weeks in our household with our large massive family it was two weeks ago yesterday that I had the privilege of officiating at our daughter Alyssa's wedding as she married her new husband Shane they got married in the Rocky Mountains the leaves were turning the colors were unbelievable and the wedding was just picturesque and the good news is Alyssa is our fifth and final daughter to get married. <laughs> the bad news is I have no money for retirement. We got back on Monday of this week after being out west for a couple of weeks. The very next day, Rhonda had extensive surgery on her lower leg. I mean, modern medicine is just amazing, right? We all know this. The orthopedic surgeon took a titanium rod and actually went below her kneecap and somehow hammered it, I guess, into her lower leg, then fastened it with pins and screws at a couple different points to her fractured tibia, that's her uh, shin bone. And the surgery went extraordinarily well, and and Rhonda still has some ups and downs, and and she's going to be out of work for some uh, weeks now, but she's every day doing a little better. And so both of us just want to say this morning, thank you for praying for us. I don't say this often enough, but Wheaton Bible Church is an extraordinarily loving church. You are extraordinarily loving people. And we want to thank you for your love. Now today, we conclude our series on the Invincible Church, on what it means, what it looks like to be invincible followers of Christ in such a time of chaos. And so to wrap things up, I want to go to Jesus' parable of the talents, now sometimes called the parable of the bags of gold, that's found in Matthew chapter 25 and begins in verse 14. But I want to tell you, and I'm going to take a couple minutes to... Uh, to create an intro to this, because there's some things that we need to understand. I want to tell you, I find this particular parable actually to be not just fascinating, but one of Jesus' most challenging parables, because here Jesus shatters our human addiction to comfort. I mean, it's like he drops a bomb. And challenges us at the core of our being, uh, this addiction to stick with what's familiar, what's easy, what's stress-free. To live locked inside our comfort zone. And Jesus is saying, that's not how my disciples live. But before I get to our passage, it begins in verse 14. Let me give you some context. Matthew chapter 24, the preceding chapter, and our chapter 25 make up what is known as Jesus' Olivet Discourse. It's called that because it's one long speech. It's one of three lengthy speeches by Jesus in the Gospels. And it's called this because it took place on the Mount of Olives, And when we come to Matthew chapter 24 in our passage, it is the Tuesday before Jesus is crucified on Friday. So Jesus' earthly ministry is nearing an end. There's a sense of urgency here. You can feel it in Jesus' words in this parable. Now the Bible is a story with four parts. There's four different chapters in the flow of the biblical story. We have creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And I say this because the Olivet Discourse, our chapters are all about the final part of the story, all about the restoration. Here Jesus is talking about the signs of his return in chapter 24. He's talking about his second coming and the final judgment in chapter 24 and chapter 25 and he's talking about more. And let me show you the the context for this. It's set up in chapter 24 and verse 3 where we read, As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when this will happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Questions we all have. Questions we would all love answers to. And so beginning in chapter 24 and uh, through chapter 25, uh, Jesus answers those questions, and I should say kind of, sort of. And he also answers some questions that the disciples even ask, haven't even asked here. But the thing I want you to hear, and we'll see this vividly in just a moment, is Jesus' second coming. I want to dispel a myth. Jesus' second coming isn't about the destruction of creation, it's about the destruction of evil. And the reconstruction or the renewal of creation. You see, just as Joshua brought Israel into the promised land, Jesus, the true and better Joshua, will one day bring all who believe into the new heavens, the new earth, and the new uh, Jerusalem. And the reason I find this particular parable to be so challenging is because here Jesus tells us what people look like who believe he's going to return. What we look like if we really believe this world isn't our home. So let's pick it up. We're going to look at this parable in three parts, and let's pick it up in verse 14. Jesus is speaking and he says again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth. Now notice, it's the master's wealth. He entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two, and to another one bag, each according to his ability, reflecting diversity in human experience and creation. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with the two bags of gold gained two more. Uh, But the one uh, who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. And all of a sudden we're thinking, okay, uh, Jesus, uh, what are you uh, talking about here? And let me stop there. Now, what is a parable? And this is really important for us to understand Jesus' words. A parable is an earthly story, but it has a heavenly meaning. Therefore, if I go back to verse 14, the man going on the journey is Jesus. And we know this because if we go back to the preceding parable in Matthew chapter 25 and look at verse 1, here's what we see. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like. So when Jesus starts these parables in chapter 25, Jesus isn't just talking about earthly stuff. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. And at the beginning of verse 14, as we just read, Jesus says it all over. He says again, it will be like the antecedent of the word it is the kingdom of heaven. So in our parable, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven. And the journey Jesus is going on is his journey back to heaven following his first coming. And so not surprisingly, we read in verse 19 After a long time, the master of those servants returned. The return is a reference here to Jesus' second coming. So this parable is about the first coming and the second coming, and especially how we live life as followers of Christ in between. Now hear me. And we're just getting started. In these first verses, Jesus is boldly claiming to be your owner. To be your master. The term master is used several times. Jesus is boldly claiming that if you are a follower of Christ, you are his servant. Jonathan Edwards once said, you have not made yourself and you have not been made for yourself. I mean, think about that. I have not made myself. I have not been made for myself that's part of what it means that's part of my identity as a a follower of Jesus Christ you are not your boss Jesus is your boss if you tend to have control issues tend to be uh, err in the direction of being a control freak like moi man you need to hear this you are not the king Jesus is the king (laughs) You are not the ruler of the universe, he is. So Paul delightfully says this in 2 Corinthians chapter five and verse 15. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came so that we would no longer live for ourselves. Jesus has come, Jesus has given you uh, eternal life, life in him, the spirit, so you will stop living for yourself. But for him... Who died and was raised from the dead. And what Paul is saying later in the New Testament in 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 is exactly Jesus' point here in this parable. Your circumstances, your possessions, your talents, your gifts, your family, your friends, your circles of influence have all been given to you by Jesus. They are bags of gold. And man, are they good, but they are not yours. They have been given to you by your master, by your savior, by your Lord. They've been given to you to use for his glory. We no longer live for ourselves. Now this is so important, it's so central that I want to make two points real quickly. The first is if you get this concept of ownership, this biblical concept of ownership, Jesus, you are my king. I'm not the king. Forgive me for trying to play the king. If you get this ownership right, then you will get life right. So let's say, hypothetically speaking, that you get COVID and you die. Now if you understand this concept of ownership, what this means is that you're drawing, as you're drawing your final breaths, you're relaxed. You know that Jesus is the master, that he numbers your days, that he's in control of every uh, second of your life, and that when you wake up on the other side, you're going to be in the presence of Jesus. I mean, Paul tells us to live as Christ and to die as gain. And he adds in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you are not your own. I can't emphasize that enough. That's the point here. You are not your own. The master entrusts us with the bags of gold. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body, with your life. The second thing I want you to understand here is how very generous God is towards you. He hasn't given you pennies. He's given you bags of gold. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died a perfect death. He was raised from the dead so that the moment you believe, you are given a new heart. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You are given spiritual gifts. Uh, You are given different circumstances. God is working all things together for good in your life. You are given circles of influence, as I said, friends, a work, a, a, a life, all that you might honor him before he returns. So Jesus owns you, and Jesus has incredibly blessed you. He he is the master, you are the servant, and just as the world is full of his unfailing love, so is your life in Christ. It's bags of gold. Your life is filled with God's unfailing life just as a river is filled with water. All right, we're just getting started. There there is so much more to come. Let's pick it up in verse 19. Here we come to the second section. After a long time, the master of those servants returned. The second coming settled accounts with them. And the man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. The master replied, and I, and I just love this. Here you see the generosity and the goodness and the kindness of God. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share. Now notice, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say come and share your master's ha- uh, sadness. Right? It says come and share your master's happiness. Do you understand that God has given you Jesus Christ to make you eternally happy? That that's where all this is headed? And you may have an incredible sorrow and loss in this life, and things may be terribly difficult for you right now, but the end game is eternal happiness. And I want you to understand in this life right now until Jesus comes back, until we go to be with Jesus, that the enjoyment of God is more satisfying and more central to happiness than anything else in life. Well done. Enter into your master's happiness Then the man, we continue, with two bags of gold, came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with the two. Uh, See, I have gained two more. And his master replied the same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many. Come and share in your master's happiness. And then we read... Then the man who would receive one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered, and I'm going to stop there. Now this parable is not about making money, okay, guys? This parable is a metaphor. That, that's a parable about you investing your life in the kingdom of God. You taking the bags of gold. You leveraging your circumstances, your abilities, your 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 time, your 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 life situation, good times and bad times, and, and you serve him. And that's what the man with the bag, the men with the bags of gold did. At least the first two. The word gain. Do you see the word gain? is a metaphor for the fruits of discipleship, the fruits of faith, the fruits of obedience. And so the five, the man with the five bags uh, gained five more. The man with two gained two more. But the, And here we're coming now to the point. The man with the one, well, not so much. He buried his treasure. He functionally denied the will of God in his life and he dug a hole and he, and he hid it. So let's keep reading. Let's pick it up. Let me go back to verse 24. And so notice what he says. Notice as he starts to unpack this. I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered. So I was afraid. And I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. And so the master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and I gathered seed where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers. You know, banking is not a new invention, guys. So that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags for whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not he have even what he does have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is talking about the final judgment. He is talking about hell. And it's all very sobering for this third servant because he had been given gold. He had been given an abundance. He had been given 20 years of income, talents, gifts, circumstances, abilities. I mean, this may be a guy who uh, was the life of the party, who had a really good job, who had experienced some uh, affluence. This may be a guy who attended church. Talked a good game. But the narcissism and the selfishness uh, of his heart made all the arrows in his life point inward, not outward. And he functionally lived, turning his back every day on God. And so his refusal to live for Christ Reveals that, now follow me, that while he may have professed faith in Christ, this third servant did not possess faith in Christ and he sent to hell. It's a picture of the unbeliever in contrast to the first two. But that's not what gnaws at me. I, 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 that's, what not, that's not what gnaws at me uh, about my life as a believer. I mean, that's a horrible reality. But let me tell you what gnaws at me as a believer in Christ that uh, Jesus is teaching here because according to the parable, now follow me in this, at the center of discipleship is a commitment to live a life of risk. So what is risk? Risk is exposure. It's exposure to the uncertain possibility of loss or injury. Now theological question, did Jesus take a risk when he became a man? The answer is no. Because Jesus knew everything. Jesus saw everything. Jesus controls everything. But we do not. So we live our lives with uncertainty all the time. Risk is a part of life. You drive your car, you're taking a risk. When Alyssa, my daughter, married Shane. When Shane, uh, uh, Alyssa's new husband, married Alyssa. They were taking risk. When Rhonda said yes to the orthopedic surgeon... She took a risk. When you play your sport, when you develop friendships, when you go to school, when you go to work, when you buy your home or your condo or or live in your apartment, when you live your life, it's full of uncertainty, it's full of risk. Jesus is not, He is not talking about ordinary everyday risk here. He's talking about kingdom risk. These parables are about the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about you, follower of Jesus Christ, over and over, denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Jesus. About you, using your gifts and abilities in the marketplace or in your neighborhood or or here in the church or wherever you are. You using your time, using your wealth, uh, using your money, using your beautiful bags of gold for his glory. because he came that we would no longer live for ourselves. Now some of you are thinking, oh wait a minute, where in the world do you get this notion of risk? Well, let me tell you. Notice that Jesus commends the two men, the first two servants in this parable for taking what God gave them, and here's the word again, gaining more, and gaining assumes faith, it assumes risk, it assumes obedience. But it even becomes more clear with this third uh, tragic servant. Let's go back to verse 26. How did Jesus respond to this servant? Well, he called him lazy and he called him wicked. Wicked? The guy didn't steal. The guy didn't commit immorality. Uh, The third servant didn't even squander uh, the money, yet Jesus calls him wicked. Why? Because wickedness in the kingdom of God isn't merely the bad things we do, it's the good things we don't do. The Spirit is nudging you to... Uh, talk to this neighbor, this coworker, this friend uh, about Christ, and you unconsciously say to yourself, no way, or to do this, or or to give here, or to step in here. And and I just want to say to you guys, failure To risk our lives for Jesus in little things. I mean daily things or medium-sized things and and big things. Failure to risk our lives in those little medium-sized big things. Failure to trust Jesus. Failure uh, to serve Jesus is every bit as evil according to Jesus here as any sin you commit. And you assume risk every day of your life. Will you, will you assume kingdom risk? We've got a great illustration of the problem with this in the Old Testament. And Moses has led Israel out of the promised land. They're on the verge of the promised land. Joshua's marshaled an Israeli army, and they're set to conquer the promised land. But Moses picks 12 men from the nation to go into the promised land and perform reconnaissance. To check it out. And those 12, they're called spies, come back. And 10 of the 12, the majority say to the nation, say to Moses, there's no way we can take the promised land. Never mind the promises of God because there's giants in the land because the cities are fortified. The walls of the cities are high. And then the two, Joshua and Caleb, the minority report, say, oh, yes, we can. God has promised. God will give us the land. And there is a panic and there is a crisis in the nation of Israel and it all has everything to do with risk. Risk. And I'm not going to go on and tease out the rest of the story, but I will tell you in Numbers 13, the report of the 10, the 10 unbelieving spies, is called evil. The word is translated sometimes bad. It's used elsewhere in the Bible for evil. Even though, now follow me, even though what the ten spies said was technically correct. The land was full of giants. The cities were well fortified. Their walls were very, very high. It was going to be very difficult. And yet it's an evil report. And do you see that it's an illustration, an Old Testament illustration of, uh, of what Jesus is saying here? Not trusting God, you not trusting God with your money, with your health, uh, with your job, with your kids, with your family, with your, your grandkids, you not stepping out in in, in obedience. Are You not serving even when it costs you is evil according to the Bible. And conversely, the s- assumption of risk is something very positive when it's for the kingdom in God's word. I mean think Abraham taking Isaac to be sacrificed not knowing what in the world was about to unfold. Or think of Moses uh, turning his back on all the wealth that was his as part of the royal family of Egypt and rejecting it all and walking away and then self-identifying with the Jews who were despised in Egypt and then some time goes by and he marks marches Marches into Pharaoh, the great Pharaoh's office. Maybe his adopted father, we uh, we don't know. And he demands, let my people go. You talk about risk. It's David taking on Goliath. The Bible's full of these stories. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego facing the fiery furnace at the threat of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar and refusing to worship Nebuchadnezzar uh, refusing to make politics their god it's Queen Esther I can't wait to talk to her in heaven Uh, self identifying with, with the Jews and saying famously, if I perish, if I, uh, I perish, why in the world are we so f- f- afraid of death? To live is Christ, to die is gain. It's the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, it's his entire life. Listen to how John Piper uh, uh, describes Paul's life in his little book. I would encourage you to get this book, Risk is Right. Piper says this of Paul. Paul never knew where the next blow would come from. Every day he risked his life for the cause of God. The roads weren't safe. The rivers weren't safe. His own people, the Jews weren't safe. The Gentiles weren't safe. The cities weren't safe. The wilderness wasn't safe. The sea wasn't safe. Even so, the so called Christian brothers weren't safe. Safety was a mirage. It didn't exist for the Apostle Paul. So he had two choices. You have two choices waste his life or live with risk and he answers this choice clearly but i do not account of my life of any value nor precious to myself Rich theology here in terms of how he views his life. I don't count my life of any value or precious to myself. If only I may finish the course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He never, Paul never knew what the day would hold, but the Calvary Road beckoned and he risked his life every day and this risk was right. Now don't misunderstand, we're not talking about. Carelessness, we're not talking about recklessness. You go to the book of Acts and Paul sneaks out of a city to avoid confrontation. We use our minds. So we drive our cars with these things called seatbelts. We get on airplanes with masks but we take risks for Jesus. Uh, We speak up about Jesus. We say to a friend, hey, you know, Jesus really did something cool in my life this week, and I just want to take 60 seconds and tell you about it, and you do, knowing he may, she may reject you for it. It's you living out the the parable of the good Samaritan, and you getting involved in a difficult situation, even though it's gonna be a horrible mess. It's you being a reconciler. God has given us a ministry of reconciliation. You stand for life in all its forms. You resist racism. You resist injustice. You seek harmony. It's you if you have the bandwidth getting involved in safe families or foster care or adoption or you lay it out and you get involved in an inner city ministry in the city of Chicago or in our pointe ministry here in West Chicago. You serve in the church. You serve in children's ministry. Uh, I didn't say this in the first service, and I'm going to say it now, and some of you may have to forgive me, but there's been 200,000 deaths of COVID related to COVID in the United States, right? We all know that. What you may not know is of those 200,000, only 100 have been children or teenagers. Not 100,000, 100. And we can't find people to serve in our children's ministry. Risk It's you giving to the church I mean think about it Uh, Those of you that are a part of Wheaton Bible Church If you've never uh, Given to the church I want to encourage you to assume This financial risk by faith As an act of obedience And I want to invite you to begin to give And give um, Faithfully You may not be able to give a lot but, But be a giver Be a joiner Uh, Demonstrate your faith. And and those of you that are giving, I mean, we have have this deficit and we have three months to turn this around. What if we upped it by $50, $100 a month or so? So shoulder and shoulder, all of us can do this together. And as I said earlier, we'll come to the end of the year and we'll praise God for what he has done and marvel at the people that have come to Christ, the missionaries, the ministries uh, uh, that have taken place. You know what risk is? Let me just net it out as simple as possible. Risk is simply obeying the commands of the Bible. Risk is obeying the commands of the Bible. It's bearing each other's burdens. It's giving. If your gift is mercy, it's being merciful. If your gift is teaching, it's, it's teaching. If it's leadership, it's leading. It's stepping out of your comfort zone because you know your bags of gold come from Jesus and Jesus is coming again. So how, how do we live like the first two servants? How do we change? How do we become more open to kingdom risks, even when it costs us? And it will cost us. Well, we have to go back to verses 24 and 25. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came, said, Master, I knew that, and here it is, you were a hard man. You were unreasonable, he goes on to say. The third servant didn't see or believe in his master's goodness. Goodness. The first two did. The third servant was problem-oriented. The first two were possibility-oriented. The third servant lived by fear. The first two lived by faith, risk, is rooted in confidence in the character of God. My God is so good. My God is so loving. My God is so uh, faithful because what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. And so it's Abraham taking Isaac, his one and only son, and what does he say to Isaac? He says, God will provide. At the core of his being, he believed in the goodness of God. It's Moses persevering with all the brokenness and dysfunction of uh, of Israel because as Hebrews tells us, he persevered because he saw him who was invisible. He saw the goodness, the faithfulness, the power, the sovereignty of God. It's David overflowing with confidence in the power of God, uh, uh, the, the, the uh, promises God has made to Israel. It's Caleb in this moment of crisis Caleb was one of the spies uh, in front of the entire nation I mean talk about risking your life everybody say no we can't go what does Caleb say we should go a wonderful description of risk risk is you getting up and going For Jesus, and again, little things or medium-sized things or big things, you're going across the street, you're going across town, you're going across the country because you believe in your heart of hearts at the center of the universe is a loving God. And you understand that nowhere is that love more vividly displayed than on the cross. uh, The table that we just celebrated a moment ago with communion. And you understand that it was um, the flaming sword of judgment that barred Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden after their sin, that bars, that flaming sword of judgment that bars every human being from the presence of a holy God because of our sin. It was that flaming sword of judgment that fell on Jesus on the cross. And he was judged that you and I might find forgiveness. He became empty that we might become full. And so when we see this glory, this beauty of a bleeding and dying uh, Savior. And we understand that in that our God is a good God and he has given me bags of gold. you know what you're going to do? You're going to assume risk for Jesus. And so I wonder, what kind of risks are you going to take for the kingdom this fall? How can we pull together as a church what can you do in your communities and your workplaces? Friends, let's light it up. Jesus has come that we might have life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, these are strong words from our Savior. And we come to you and we ask that you would give us an appetite for Jesus. You would give us a hunger and thirst for him. That we would understand that he is our bag of gold. And everything else is the overflow. And that you would work in our lives. That you would work in this church, Wheaton Bible Church. And in this crazy, funky, difficult time, we would... Light up the dark sky as stars in the night for you. And I want to commit my brothers and sisters, these children and these students to you. Bless them as we now worship you. Amen.